Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our sports medicine series. In this lecture, we will be talking about conditions affecting the articular cartilage of the knee joint. We're going to start with addressing focal defects in the knee and the associated treatment options we can use to address these defects. Specifically, we will review the histology of articular cartilage, focal defect management options, and specific disease processes, including osteonecrosis, SONC, or spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee, and osteochondritis desiccans. All right, let's get started. So how do articular cartilage defects occur? Articular cartilage defects can run from a global degenerative disease seen in osteoarthritis to focal cartilaginous defects. Focal cartilaginous defects and their management are a fairly broad topic, which really runs a spectrum from low-energy, repetitive, accumulative microtrauma to more high-energy, acute disruption of the cartilaginous surface. The concerning issue is that, one, when a cartilage defect occurs, it has limited ability to heal, and two, our ability to treat these defects is also equally limited in its efficacy. To refresh, let's briefly talk about the biology and histology of articular cartilage. So what is the structure and function of articular cartilage? Remember that articular cartilage, or hyaline cartilage, is composed of water, type 2 collagen, and proteoglycans. It functions to evenly distribute loads across the articular surface. Cartilage is made up of chondrocytes and extracellular matrix. The chondrocytes produce the collagen and proteoglycans, and they respond to both mechanical and chemical stimuli. The extracellular matrix is comprised of water, collagen, and proteoglycans. Water makes up 65 to 85% of the mass of cartilage. Water content increases in osteoarthritis. We will discuss the changes that occur to articular cartilage in osteoarthritis versus normal aging during the arthroplasty section. Collagen makes up 10 to 20% of the cartilage mass and is again comprised of type 2 collagen. Proteoglycans make up the remaining 10 to 15% of the mass of cartilage. I like to visualize proteoglycan molecules as a tree. The leaves on the tree come in two types, keratin sulfate and chondroitin sulfate. These leaves bind to a protein core which would be analogous to a branch. The branch would be called an aggregate molecule. These aggregate molecules then bind to the hyaluronic acid core. This is analogous to each branch binding to the tree trunk. The aggregate molecules bind to the hyaluronic acid core via link proteins. Proteoglycans are responsible for the compressive strength of articular cartilage. Because the leaves on the tree, or the keratin sulfate and chondroitin sulfate, contain negative sulfide bonds, they are hydrophilic. This attracts water into the articular cartilage. The type 2 collagen meshwork keeps the cartilage from swelling. Under loads, the water gets squeezed out of the articular surface, and as the load is released, it flows back in. This is known as elastohydrodynamic lubrication. Cartilage is comprised of three zones and a tide mark. In the superficial zone, type 2 collagen fibers are oriented parallel to the joint surface. There are flattened chondrocytes, and it resists shear stresses very well. In the intermediate zone, which is the thickest layer, the type 2 collagen is more randomly organized, and there are large, round chondrocytes. The deep layer has the highest concentration of proteoglycans and type 2 collagen fibers, which run perpendicular to the joint surface and cross the tide mark. The tide mark divides the superficial or uncalcified cartilage from the calcified cartilage below. Cartilage injuries are classified as superficial or deep based upon whether or not they cross the tide mark. Superficial injuries do not heal spontaneously on their own. Deep lacerations through the tide mark will have an influx of undifferentiated mesenchymal stem cells capable of creating fibrocartilage. Remember, 
Fibrocartilage is not hyaline cartilage. Fibrocartilage is comprised of type 1 collagen. It is stiffer and has decreased wear characteristics versus hyaline cartilage. Where does type 10 collagen play a role? Type 10 collagen is located within the calcified cartilage. Below the tide mark lies the subchondral bone. Remember that cartilage is avascular, aneural, and alymphatic. All right, so that's a brief synopsis of the cellular biology and histology of articular cartilage. Now, how do these patients present with articular cartilage damage? Patients with symptomatic defects may present with a history of trauma, or they may be found incidentally on MRI or arthroscopy performed for other reasons. If symptomatic, they may complain of pain, effusion, or mechanical symptoms. On physical exam, it is essential to assess for malalignment, which can lead to altered contact pressures and diffuse cartilage wear. Ligament dyslaxity also needs to be assessed, as it may need to be addressed concurrently with attempts to restore the cartilaginous defect. The initial imaging studies should include an AP, lateral, and sunrise view of the knee. In addition, a 45-degree PA view and weight-bearing long-leg radiographs should be ordered to assess for any joint space narrowing, arthritic changes, or malalignment. If patellofemoral or trochlear pathology is going to be addressed, a CT scan can be ordered to best measure the tibial tuberosity trochlear groove distance. Some surgeons prefer to perform an anteriorization, also known as a Marquette osteotomy, or an anteromedialization, also known as a Fulkerson osteotomy, to unload the distal pole or lateral patella facet when addressing patellofemoral joint defects. Though plain radiographs and CT scans are useful, MRI scans are far and away the easiest way to assess for focal defects. Newer degeneric sequence MRIs are especially helpful in evaluating for cartilage defects. So how do we manage our patients that present with cartilage defects? For defects that are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, a trial of conservative therapy is warranted. This includes rest, ice, anti-inflammatories, and physical therapy. Injections and bracing may be warranted. However, there is a lack of evidence supporting their efficacy. Okay, so most questions involving articular cartilage defects tend to focus on how they are treated, and that is what I want to talk about now. If defects fail non-operative management, then they may undergo a variety of treatments depending on the size, depth, and location of the lesion. Patient-specific factors such as age and activity level also play a role in decision-making. Regardless of the procedure performed, it is vital to address any malalignment or instability simultaneously while addressing the cartilage defect. For shallow defects, debridement of the loose flaps of cartilage may help to resolve mechanical symptoms. An osteochondral defect with adequate subchondral bone may be amenable to subchondral drilling or fixation with absorbable screws. Remember that osteochondral defects in patients with open growth plates have an excellent prognosis and often heal on their own with a period of non-weight-bearing activity modification. We will go over this in greater detail in a minute. For full thickness femoral condyle defects less than 4 square centimeters, many surgeons will perform either a microfracture or an osteochondral autograft transfer. Greater than 4 square centimeters, an osteochondral allograft transplant or an autologous chondrocyte implantation may be better options. For defects within the patellofemoral joint that measure less than 4 square centimeters, microfracture or an osteochondral autograft transfer may be attempted. Again, for larger defects, an autologous chondrocyte implantation with or without an unloading procedure is a viable treatment option. So let's talk briefly about each of the procedures I just mentioned. For the most part, you won't be asked when to use each in the management of specific defects. However, the mechanisms by which each of the procedures worked has been the subject of several questions in the past. Microfracture is an ideal choice in defects that are less than 4 square centimeters and well contained. 
It is performed by creating stable cartilage walls surrounding the defect and then using an awl to create holes in the subchondral bone approximately 3 to 4 millimeters apart. This allows stem cells to egress through the holes into the subchondral bone. Eventually, fiber cartilage composed of type 1 collagen will fill in the defect. Remember that this is not hyaline cartilage. Which collagen comprises hyaline cartilage? Type 2 collagen. Everyone tends to minimize microfracture as it can be done quickly and easily. However, it is important to talk with your patient about the fact that they will have weight-bearing restrictions for approximately 6 to 8 weeks afterwards. So, if it's a possibility that they might need it, they need to be prepared well in advance. So remember, in acute lesions less than 4 centimeters squared, microfracture is an excellent choice. Alright, how about an osteochondral autograft transfer, or an OATS procedure? This is performed by removing plugs of healthy cartilage and bone from non-weight-bearing surfaces, typically from the periphery of the femoral trochlea, and transferring them to the damaged weight-bearing area. The benefits of this procedure are that the damaged cartilage is replaced with hyaline cartilage that utilizes an autograft, and you get bone-to-bone healing of the subchondral bone. This can be done through a single-stage procedure as well. It's limited, however, by the size of the lesion. The donor tissue needs to come from somewhere, and you're essentially robbing Peter to pay Paul. For practical reasons, getting the donor tissue plug to lie flush in the defect socket can be difficult as the surface geometry of the trochlea is different from the radius of curvature found on the is different from the radius of curvature found on the femoral condyles. Patients also need to limit their weight bearing for 8 to 12 weeks postoperatively to ensure there is adequate graft fixation. Autologous chondrocyte implantation has recently gained popularity as well. This is a two-stage procedure that requires harvesting of cartilage, in other words chondrocytes, during the initial step. A sample is usually taken from a non-weight bearing area, particularly the intercondylar notch. The sample is taken and sent to a lab where they digest the extracellular matrix and culture and grow the chondrocytes. During the second stage, the defect is then debrided down the vertical stable walls. A periosteal patch or acellular dermal matrix is then sewn in place over the defect. The cultured chondrocytes are then injected underneath the patch. Over time, the chondrocytes create tissue more similar to native hyaline cartilage than fibrocartilage. The greatest benefits are that large defects can be addressed as there is no donor site limitations and it creates a more normal cartilage morphology. However, in clinical studies, it has been pretty comparable with microfracture. Macy, or matrix-associated autologous chondrocyte implantation, is a newer technique in which cultured cells are embedded into a matrix, and then the matrix is either glued or sutured into place, as opposed to sewn under a patch, like in traditional autologous chondrocyte implantation. Alright, how about cadaver grafts? Osteochondral allograft transplantation. These are big, fun cases to do. The cadaver allograft is fresh and obtained from a tissue bank. This allows for the transplantation of live chondrocytes. The graft has been matched for size and radius of curvature from imaging studies submitted in advance. The benefit of these is you can replace a very large defect or those with underlying bone loss. However, with all allografts, you have the underlying risk of infection. Lastly, if you're addressing defects within the patellofemoral groove, you may want to unload that area at the time of procedure. We've already mentioned two procedures, the Marquette and Fulkerson, so let's talk a bit more about each. For lesions of the distal patella pole, a Marquette osteotomy or tibial tuberosity anteriorization may be performed. Remember, this can only be done with up to one centimeter of anterior translation without risking skin necrosis over the tuberosity. 
for lateral lesions, a standard Fulkerson or tuberosity anteromedialization can be performed to unload the lateral facet. This is the same technique we discussed earlier with patella dislocations. Again, do not consider doing this if the patient has any cartilage damage on the medial patellar facet. Alright, so that's damage to articular cartilage and some of the methods by which we address it. Now I want to talk briefly about three specific disease processes, particularly osteonecrosis, spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee, or SONC, and osteochondritis desiccans. Osteonecrosis occurs more commonly in women and men and is associated with many of the same risk factors that lead to avascular necrosis of the shoulder and hip joint. This includes alcoholism, sickle cell disease, steroid use, lupus, hypercoagulable states, and several other risk factors. There is a hypothesis with spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee, or SONG, that is associated with a meniscal root tear leading to increased pressure on the articular surface causing subchondral insufficiency fractures and subsequent osteonecrosis. Now how do patients with osteonecrosis typically present? The patient presentation is generally nebulous. They will complain of pain with activity, possibly an effusion, and mechanical symptoms. If patients complain of bilateral knee pain, the contralateral extremity should also be imaged as osteonecrosis can occur bilaterally in up to 80% of patients. Radiographs of the knee joint may show subchondral lucency or a wedge-shaped lesion along the articular surface. An MRI is indicated if you suspect osteonecrosis. Osteonecrotic lesions will appear dark on T1 and bright on T2. Now, how do we manage these patients? For stable lesions, conservative treatment should be attempted. However, if conservative treatment fails, the patient may require operative intervention. For stable lesions, a core decompression may be attempted, or if unstable and displaced, an osteochondral allograft or unicompartmental knee arthroplasty may be required to replace the lost tissue. Spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee, or SONC, particularly affects females over 55 years of age, presents with a sudden onset of knee pain, effusion, and possibly tenderness generally over the area of the medial femoral condyle. This may follow a previous knee arthroscopy. There is a hypothesis that spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee joint may be associated with a meniscal root tear as mentioned previously. This leads to increased pressure on the articular surface, causing a subchondral insufficiency fracture and subsequent osteonecrosis. Sonk lesions are commonly unilateral as opposed to osteonecrosis, which presents as bilateral. Sonk lesions commonly occur in the medial femoral condyle. Remember this location, as the medial femoral condyle is also the location for osteochondritis desiccans in the juvenile population. Spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee is generally a self-limited process that can be treated with conservative therapy alone, including protected weight-bearing, ice, rest, and pain management. If, however, the patient fails conservative treatment and the lesion persists, they may require a reconstructive procedure with either a unicompartmental knee arthroplasty or a total knee arthroplasty, depending on the size of the lesion and the condition of the remainder of the knee. Finally, let's turn our attention to osteochondritis desiccans. Juvenile osteochondritis desiccans generally occurs in patients with open growth plates between the ages of 9 and 16 years of age. The exact etiology is unknown, however it is commonly thought to occur through vascular insufficiency. The most common location for a lesion within the knee joint is the posterolateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle. Remember that as it has been tested on several occasions, the posterolateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle. Patients again will have a fairly nebulous presentation with activity-related mechanical pain and effusions. The Wilson's test for osteochondritis desiccans has been described. 
During this exam, the patient's tibia is internally rotated between 30 and 90 degrees of knee flexion. This maneuver is thought to place stress on the posterior lateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle. If they experience pain with this internal rotation maneuver and relief of pain with external rotation of the tibia, then it is considered a positive finding. Standard radiographs, including a PA 45-degree flexion view, should be obtained to assess for any fragmentation. MRI is by far the most sensitive for detecting osteonecrosis and will help to evaluate the size of a lesion, the presence of any loose bodies, and if the lesion remains in continuity with the rest of the femur or if it has become detached. For stable lesions in patients with open growth plates, conservative treatment yields excellent results with up to 75% resolving on their own. This includes protected weight bearing and possibly a hinged knee brace, particularly just to limit activity. If the lesion is stable and has not healed after a trial of conservative treatment, retrograde subchondral drilling may be performed to aid in the healing process. If the lesion is unstable, it may need to be fixed back into place with resorbable screws. Large lesions which are detached may require a chondral resurfacing procedure such as an osteoarticular allograft transplantation. The ability to perform a chondral resurfacing procedure versus an allograft reconstruction depends on the integrity of the subchondral bone. Remember that overall, young patients with open growth plates and lesions in the medial femoral condyle have a better prognosis. Patients with closed growth plates, lesions within the lateral femoral condyle or patella, or if on MRI there is appearance of synovial fluid behind the lesion, there tends to be a worse prognosis. Alright, so that's it for cartilaginous defects. In this lecture, we discussed superficial defects, reconstruction options, and the specific disease processes of osteonecrosis, spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee, or SONC, and osteochondritis desiccans. That concludes our sports medicine lectures involving the knee joint. Next up, we'll talk about some pathology affecting the shoulder. As always, thanks for listening.